God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. And as that song just declared, let us become more aware of you today in this place. You are welcome here. You are welcome in this place. You are welcome in our lives. And so God, come. Show up. Speak through me. Speak through your word. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you, band, worship band. Thank you guys so much. Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good. My name's Adam Truax. I've been um, a member here at Gateway since... Oh, the summer of 2006, so long time, too long, some might say. You guys might want to get rid of me. I get it. I want to get rid of me sometimes, too. Um, but this is my home. This is where uh, I met my wife. This is where my daughter is growing up. Um, if you don't know, my wife is Megan Truex. She's one of the pastors here. Um, and I've been leading worship since I was 15 years old, and just the, the joy that it brings me when I get to come into this place and lead you guys in worship is a, is a great joy. So I thank you guys for giving me that opportunity and for worshiping along with me. And, and a couple weeks ago, or about a week and a half, or however many days ago, Matt Marble called me um, and said, hey, we want you to speak, and we want you to speak on Nehemiah, about how Nehemiah built a wall. And I thought, well, that could be controversial because I don't know who's going to pay for that wall. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work out. But that's as political as I'm getting right there. So we're done. One joke. But it had to be made. It's a bad joke. But, but we are, uh, I'm excited about this story in Nehemiah. And we have a ton of scripture to get through. Nehemiah is like 13 chapters long. And we're going to go through 12 chapters of it. So buckle up, get ready. If you have your Bibles, just open them to Nehemiah, anywhere in Nehemiah, because we're going to get there eventually. Um, I promise you that. I'm not going to read the entire thing to you, because there are some names that I can't pronounce, a lot of names I can't pronounce in it, so bear with me on that. And if you are expecting a child, just go to Nehemiah chapter 3 and put your finger down, and that should be the name of your kid, because they're crazy, and they're like five syllables long, and they all start with like... Like five consonants. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but I'm excited about this. But I want to tell you guys where we're going to go first so you can just put it down. So on your little outlines, there's not even an outline. On that blank piece of paper that's in your, uh, in your thing, I want you guys to write these four phrases down. And just leave a space in between each phrase so that you have room to take notes if you want to take notes. But here are the four phrases. <clears throat> the first phrase is God gives us the tools. God gives us the tools. Leave a little space, and then below that, I want you to put open our eyes. Open our eyes. A little bit below that, put the, the two words, be ready. And then a little bit below that, put celebrate. So at the top, we've got God gives us the tools, open our eyes, be ready, and celebrate. And that's where we're going today. Those, that's kind of the structure we're working in today as we dig into the story of Nehemiah. Now, last week, Matt Marble spoke on uh, the Israelites leaving Egypt, coming out of slavery in Egypt, and getting to a place where they didn't know the way forward. And they got to the Red Sea, and God said, hold your staff out, and they all took off across the Red Sea, and uh, the Israelites made it out safe. 
out of the Red Sea. But the Israelites' story didn't stop there. The Israelites were the, the people of God, God's chosen people, and uh, God promised them this, this land that they called the promised land, and that's what we determine, that's what we call it today. And the Israelites then wandered through the desert and eventually got into the promised land, and eventually they established a city called Jerusalem, the city of God. So the people of God, the Israelites, God's chosen people, are living in the city of God, Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? People of God, city of God, they're together. They should be together, the both of God. It makes sense, right? But the Israelites get exiled out of Jerusalem. They get scattered. They're, generations after generations after generations pass in Israel, and then they get scattered, and they get kicked out of Jerusalem. And their city is struggling. There's not very many Israelites left in the town And they're everywhere. And that's where we start our story in Nehemiah today. So God's people, who we saw delivered last week, are now in a place where they need deliverance again. Because the people of God are no longer living in the city of God. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? All right, so let's jump in. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. In the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, again, just pick some names, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. So Nehemiah is not in Jerusalem. He's in a different city, working in the citadel of the city of Susa. And Hanani, verse 2, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So Hanani comes back into, into the presence of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah says, hey, how are the people doing? How's the city look? You guys were just in Jerusalem, the city of God. What's going on there? And in verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province and are in, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. In verse 4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So Hannah and I relays to Nehemiah what's going on in Jerusalem and says, hey, it's not great, right? The, the wall that protects this city is destroyed. The gates where you go in and out of the city, they've been burned up with fire and the people who are left there, God's people who are still there are in trouble. And he uses the word disgrace. And Nehemiah knowing that this is the city of God and the people of God need to be dwelling in the city of God is heartbroken. And he mourned for some days. And at the very end of chapter one, there's, Nehemiah has this beautiful prayer and it's too long to read, but it's wonderful. And the very last sentence says this, I was the cupbearer to the king. And it doesn't fit with that that prayer that Nehemiah gives, this beautiful prayer, and he ends the prayer and he says, oh yeah, I was the cupbearer. Now the cupbearer to the king is the guy who brought the king his wine every day. When the king wanted wine, he snapped his fingers and said, bring me wine, or whatever the king did, ring, rang a bell or whatever, and Nehemiah would come with a glass of wine and taste it before giving it to the king, A, to make sure it's not spoiled, to make sure that the king is getting the best wine, and also to make sure it's not poisoned. And so Nehemiah, every day, has direct access to the king. 
He has direct access to the one who makes all the decisions. He has direct access to the most powerful person. He was their cupbearer. And that's where chapter 2 starts. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. It had not, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. So the king recognized on Nehemiah that his heart was broken for some reason. He didn't know what it was. He knew Nehemiah wasn't sick. But he said, what's going on inside of you? What's going on inside of you? And Nehemiah says this. I was very much afraid, verse 3. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, what is it you want? And here's the key. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, comma, and I answered the king. So the king says, what is it that you want? What's going to make you feel better? What's going to make you not heartbroken? In verse 5, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will it take? How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? So it pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. Nehemiah, having direct access to the one who makes all the decisions, just flat out asked, hey, I need to go back to my city so that I can rebuild it. That's what God laid on his heart. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and then I asked the king. Having direct access, he asked for the things he needed so that he could go do what God was stirring inside of him. In verse 7, I also said, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the, the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because of the, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. Not only did Nehemiah just ask for time to go rebuild it, but he asked for some tools to go rebuild it. Hey, I need some letters so that as I'm traveling back to Jerusalem, I can get there safely. So here's some letters. So if I get stopped by the highway patrol or whatever that is on the trans Euphrates way, and he can say, here's a letter from King Artaxerxes so that I can get there. And then he said, hey, can you also send me something that I can give to this guy named Asif, who's in charge of the royal forest so that I can get some wood to rebuild this, these gates and these things in my city that need to be rebuilt. Nehemiah, with direct access to the king, asked the king for the things he needed, and the king granted them. God gives us the tools to do the things that he's stirring in our hearts. God gives us the tools to do the things that he's stirring in our hearts. We might see a need or something going on around us, but God gives us the tools. God calls us to do something, and then he gives us the tools to do that, 
that job. My grandfather was a construction foreman for a long time. He came back from the Korean War, started working construction, and did until he uh, retired in his early 60s. And he uh, lived on this little one acre, I should have brought a picture, this little, it was a narrow one acre lot in Kansas City, Kansas. And when they moved to this house, it was the country. And when they moved out of this house, it was like urban dwelling, right? So they had this one acre lot in the middle of tiny, tiny yards. But it was narrow and long, and it had this little sloping hill. And because my grand- grandfather worked construction, he was constantly buying tools, constantly buying tools. And they had the house, and there was a detached garage, and at the back of the property, there was at one point what I believe was a chicken coop and like a little outbuilding, but he, like, because he worked construction, made it look like another home in the back of the property. And so he had building one, building two, and building three, and then attached to building one, he built building four, and then he had another building, building five, that he built on this one-acre lot. There were five outbuildings, where he had all of the tools. And he would say, hey, I'm, uh, I've got some gravel I need to shovel. Adam, go down to number five. He just numbered them, and you had to memorize what number was what. Go down to number five. Here's the key to the padlock, and get me this specific shovel. It's got the red handle. He would get real specific with it. Or, hey, uh, you need what kind of nail? Okay, that's going to be in number two. Go here and go get that nail. My my grandfather always had exactly what he needed to do the job. And if you needed a tool to do the job, he had that as well. Right? Does that make sense? My grandfather had everything that you needed. And if you asked for it, he was willing to give it to you. That's the same as our Father in heaven. God gives us these tools that we need. And we can look forward in the New Testament. In in 1 Corinthians, you don't have to jump there. I'm just going to read through it. Chapter 12, it says this, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord, different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it's the same God at work. You see, God might give us different tools, but it's still God working. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit, a message of wisdom, and to another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, and to another, faith, and to another, gifts of healing, and to another, miraculous powers, and to another, prophecy, and to another, distinguishing between spirits, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and still to another, the interpretation of tongues. And all, all these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determined. You see, God has gifted each of us in a specific way. Maybe it's in wisdom. Maybe it's in knowledge. Maybe it's in faith. And maybe it's in healing or prophecy or some other gifting. But God has gifted each of us and given us each a specific set of tools to do the task that's laid out in front of us. I think a lot of times we come up to something that God has asked us to do and we say, I don't have the right ladder. I can't reach up there to do this thing that you're asking me to do, God. It's too big for me. Or maybe I don't have the right whatever tool that you think you might need. I, like in Moses' case, it was, God, I don't speak well. And God said, yeah, I know, but here's Aaron. Here's a tool that you can use to go, to go lead your people out of Egypt. 
Time after time after time in scripture, we see where God provides the tools that the people need to specifically do the work, and God has done that for us already. So point number one, God gives us those tools. Let's jump back into Nehemiah. Nehemiah makes his way to Jerusalem, and when he gets there, he spends a couple nights there, and in Jerusalem chapter, or not Jerusalem, in Nehemiah chapter two, it starts like this. I'm just gonna summarize it. Nehemiah stays there a couple nights, and he hops up, and heads out on his own in the dark on a horse or donkey of some sort and inspects the wall. And he comes back. Nobody knew he was out there. And he'd not told anybody about God's prompting on his heart to rebuild this city. And so he comes back into Jerusalem and he gathers the officials and the priests together. And in verse 17, it says this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also, t- I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So Nehemiah tells the people the officials, hey, this is what God's kind of revealed to me. This is what the king provided to me when I asked him. So something's moving already. You guys want to be a part of this? And they just reply, yeah, let's start rebuilding. Let's go. So the work on the wall begins. And as we look through chapter three, in this section of chapter three, it is a hard read because it's a lot of names and a lot of names of gates, various gates that are on this city wall, and it just lists the people who are doing the work. This person is working on this gate next to this person who's working on this section of the wall, next to this person who's working on this section of the wall, and so on and so forth. And then we jump down, and we get to verse 9, and I'm going to botch these names. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. And adjoining this, Jedidiah, son of that word, made repairs opposite his house. Made repairs opposite his house. And Haddish, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. And then if we jump on down to verse 23, it says this. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashab made repairs in front of their house. And next to them, Azariah, son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. And if we jump forward even further to verse 28, it says, above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. The people were building this wall, but some of these people were opening the front doors of their homes and saying, the wall in front of my house is broken and I need to rebuild it. God put in front of these people work to do right in front of their house. We need as God's people who's stirred something in us to do God's work, to open our eyes to the work that he's laid in front of our house. We don't need to worry about what so-and-so down the street is doing or what this person at church is doing or what that person at church is doing, but God has stirred something, uh, uh, something in, a, in each of us to do the work directly in front of our house. We gotta open our eyes to it. We gotta open our eyes to the work that God has put directly in front of us. 
Ephesians 2 verse 8 says this, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works in which God prepared in advance for us to do. We have been created for good works. It's how God designed us. He didn't design us to sit back idly by and just watch the world pass by us. But God designed us in such a way that we get to participate in the kingdom work that he is doing here on earth. And when we participate in that kingdom work that he is doing here on earth, we draw closer to him because we're in relationship with him in that moment. So our eyes need to be open to see the work that God has laid out in front of us. And we need to not worry about the work that so-and-so is doing, but focus on the work in front of us. In the ESV version of this, it says, instead of that God prepared in advance for us to do, it says that, where is it at? We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, and we should walk in in them. We should walk into the good works that God's called us to. The phrase that kept coming to my mind was wade into it. Wade into the work that God has called you to. Because once, once you're wet, you're wet, right? Once you get your waist in the water, you're not going to just immediately not be a part of that water. It's going to take a little bit. You're all in at that point. We need to wade into the work that God's called us to. If you were here this morning, as early as I was, I got here about 7.45 this morning, and usually I'm like one of the first three or four people here on a Sunday, and this morning, most Sundays when I walk in, there are no chairs set up, because they haven't pulled them in here yet. But this morning when I got here, Art was here already, and he'd already had two Mountain Dew kickstarts, <laughs> and he had two more like at the ready, and that old boy was setting up chairs, all by himself. So if you're sitting in a metal chair this morning, Art put it up. He did it all. He didn't have any help this morning. Right? But here's the deal. Art might not have thought through all of this, but in my mind I'm going, oh, he's doing the work laid out in front of him. He's doing the work laid out in front of him. Because for some reason Art gets here every Sunday morning and he sits, sets up these chairs. And I don't know what is it that stirs inside of him, but something is. And it's making him want to serve you and serve his God. And he sets up the chairs and he does the work in front of them. All right, there's somebody else in our church that does that. Emery Bowsman, if you know Emery at all, she um, is a volunteer in our Kids Quest ministry. And Sharon Alexander, our Kids Quest pastor, a couple years ago asked the Kids Quest leaders to kind of say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if you invested in the few that you have week in, week out, the few kids that are in your grade level, wouldn't it be cool if every year as they graduate to the next grade level, if you said, you know what, I'm gonna move up with them to the next grade level to provide a little bit of stability, to provide some consistency, and just a constant voice of the same person saying these are truths about God in their life week in, week out, year after year after year. And Emory has been a part of that for a number of years now, and her kids now are in fifth grade. And what a cool story it is to see these kids for a number of years grow up and have the same person investing in them year after year after year. Emery is doing the work that God has called her to. She's doing the work right in front of her. She's not doing anything else. 
She's just doing this and she's doing it to the best of her ability. She's not stretching herself thin. She's not wearing herself out. She's just solely focused on the lives of these 10 kids or so that she's got. And they're gonna graduate from fifth grade and they're gonna go to sixth grade and that's middle school. And when you get to middle school, you join our student ministry, TPX. And Emory's plan is to move on up with them. And just to continue to invest in these students' lives year after year after year so that they just have a constant voice of these are truths about God and you're not gonna hear anything else but that from me. Right? The work that's laid out in front of us. What's this work look like? I don't know. For you, it might be showing up early on a Sunday morning and setting up these chairs with art, and as you're setting them up, just praying over the person who's gonna put their rear in the seat later in the day. God, may this person hear your voice clearly today. Maybe you show up early and you help set up kids' quest areas, or maybe you lead a kids' quest group, or maybe you lead a life group, or maybe you don't do anything at the church, but you are investing in the people that are around you on a day-to-day basis, whether that be at work or school or at home. What's the work that God has called you to? What does that look like? And how can you jump into it? How can you wade into that work? Uh, A couple weeks ago, I followed Timothy Keller on Twitter, and he wrote this. If God exists, then every good endeavor, even the simplest one, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. The smallest things we can do can matter for all eternity if we do it because God's called us to do it. What's the work that God has put in front of you? What's the work that God has called you to? And when we are called to this work, when we're called to to do the things that God's done, and, and, and I've had this conversation with numerous people, but when I am doing the work that God's called him to, God called me to do, it's the closest I ever am to God when I'm in relationship with him, when I'm doing what God's asked me to do. When I go off on my own, I'm not doing what God's asked me to do, so I'm not in as close of a relationship with him. But when I'm doing what he asked me to do, I'm in relationship with him, and I'm close to him, and I can hear his voice, and I can hear his promptings, and I know what God's called me to do, and I know how he's gifted me and the tools he's given to me, and that the job that he's asked me to do will succeed because he's with me. What does that look like for you? In Nehemiah chapter four, we're gonna jump forward a little bit. In verse six, it says this, we rebuilt the wall, So all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed and they were very angry, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So they'd got the wall halfway built. They're doing great. Things are clicking. And all of a sudden, the best villain names in the world, Sandballot is like a great villain name, Tobiah, right? These guys are like bad guys. Start to plot about how to stop this work that God's called them to. And Nehemiah starts to put people in places where they can protect what God has started. 
And in verse 14, if we jump down to verse 14, it says this. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And when the enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. In verse 16, from that day on, half my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Nehemiah heard of what was happening, the people coming against him, and they started to stand guard. They were ready for what was coming at them. Right? It says some of the guys who were carrying the materials, I don't know what these materials look like. I just assumed they're giant rocks. Had a giant rock in one hand and a sword in the other, and they were ready to fight. But the work continued. It didn't stop. They didn't cower back. They didn't just walk away from it because, oh no, we might be destroyed. No, instead they said, we're going to carry the material and we're going to carry a sword and we're going to be ready for what God or what the enemy might do to us. We have to be ready for what the enemy throws at us. The enemy knows when God's work is being done, and he doesn't take that lightly. Satan knows when the work of God is being done and when God's will is being accomplished in and amongst his people, and the enemy will do anything that he can do to tear it apart. And so we have to be ready for what Satan throws at us. In Ephesians chapter 6 The armor of God, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We've got to be ready with these things. When God gives us tools and gives us a job to do, Satan's gonna come after us. And so we can't just dive into the work and have our blinders on and miss out on the other things that God is trying to teach us. We've gotta stay in his word. We gotta get prayed up. We gotta have people who have our back who know, hey, God's called this person to do this thing and I'm gonna back him up with prayer and just having my eyes on him to know what's happening in his life. Maybe today the work that God's called you to do isn't some physical work or isn't being, building a relationship with a, with a neighbor or somebody here at church. Maybe the work that God's called you to be is to be a defender in prayer. Maybe God just asks you just to every night just to go, who's doing the work in the church and who needs God's protection on them? And just to pray an intercessory prayer on their behalf. Hey, on this person, protect them, guide them, direct them. Maybe that's your role. 
And that's how you are the person who's carrying the materials and carrying the sword and saying, hey, I'm supporting the people who are building the wall by praying and living my life in such a way that I am aware of what's going on around me, what God is doing around me, and I can have their backs when their backs need to be had. God's given us tools, and he's given us work, and we gotta be ready. Because the enemy's coming, and he's gonna try and knock us down. But God's got us, and we have to stand firm. So Nehemiah continues the work on the wall, and in chapter six, verse 15, this is a number that blows my mind. They built this wall around the city. Now, it's not as big as it originally was, but they kind of shrunk the city size a little bit. In 52 days, they built a wall in 52 days. That's crazy, because I can't pick out a paint color in 52 days, right? I'm not kidding. There are swatches painted on my bedroom right now of paint colors to pick from. God did this work in their lives in 52 days to protect the people of God and the city of God so that they could go after what God's got going on in their lives. And they celebrated after that. In Nehemiah chapter 12, it says this. And on that day, when they consecrated the wall, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy The women and children also rejoiced. And the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. They rejoiced and gave sacrifices and praised to God when the work finished and it could be heard far away. We have to learn how to celebrate the work that God has called us to. I am not a good celebrator. My wife will tell you I'm the worst when some, like, Like if something good happens in sports, I might give like a, yeah. You know, sometimes I get more emotional about it, but it's not much, right? If something amazing happens in the lives of somebody else, I don't jump up and down. And I should, because God's working. But what I do is I kind of stifle it, and I'm trying hard not to anymore, because of these types of verses, the sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. You know, what, what is this work that God's called us to? Building people. He's called us to build people so that those people might know Christ. And when we know Christ, we make him known. And we, when we make him known, we enjoy that journey. We celebrate that. So what's the work God's called you to? And when God completes it, are you gonna celebrate it? Are you gonna celebrate it? I don't know what that looks like for you. I don't know if it just means like telling people about what God did, because it's a great encouragement to me when somebody says, you know what, I was at work and there was this guy and he was struggling and I just had a verse. I just had a memory verse that I memorized years ago and I walked up to him and said, hey, this might be weird. You might not understand this, but this is something that I think relates to what you've got going on in your life. And then you tell them, hey, this is what God says about this situation that you've got going on. And then later on in your day, you might come across somebody who has the same belief system as you. And you're like, hey, Rob, Rob, you won't believe what happened today. You won't believe it. God put something on my heart and I acted on it. And I don't know what's gonna come of it, but I'm just excited that God used me, right? And hopefully Rob jumps up and down and screams and cheers, right? 
because we need to get excited about the work that God is doing in and amongst us. Because when we're excited, we're making him known. And when we make him known, God grows bigger in the eyes and the hearts of his people. And when God grows bigger in the eyes and the hearts of his people, more and more and more people come to know who he is. And guess what? When they come to know who he is, they start declaring, hey, God, this God thing that you introduced me to is really cool and it's really loud and it's really big and more and more people are making him known. And more and more people are coming to know who he is. Our work is building people, and God's given each of us specific tools to do it. So it might seem right now like everything's in chaos. It might seem right now that you don't know a lot of things that God is doing. Because trust me, it's felt that way for me. You might not know what God's got going on, but you know a couple of things. You know how he's gifted you, and you know that he's called you to do something. So are your eyes open to it? Are your eyes open to wade into the water that is the good work that he created you to do? What's that look like for you? I don't know the answer. But I do know this. I try and lead you guys as well as I can in worship. That's my one job. I don't have anything else. That's it. That's what I focus on. I don't worry how Kids Quest is going. I'm not in Kids Quest. God's not called me to Kids Quest. I worry about worship. I don't worry about what's going on in life groups because I'm not in charge of life groups. I'm in charge of worship. So that's what I do. And I try and do it best. And when I do what God's called me to do, I get to see him more and more clearly every day. And what a joy that is when I do that work. What's the work that God's called you to do? So we're just gonna take a minute. Let's let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let's just take a moment just to ask God, hey God, what is this work that you've called us to? What is this work that you've called us to? And how can I do it? How can I jump into the work that you've called me to do? Because the people of God and the city of God need me to step up and do something. So what does it look like for me? How can I support the others that are doing the work around me? God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the truths that you laid out for us. We don't know a lot, but we know who you are. And so we lean on you today. We know that you've called us to do your good work because you've created us for that. And we know that you've provided us the gifting and the talents and the tools to do the job. And so God, I ask today that in this place, you start to 
Give us inklings of ideas of what you want us to do. What is our specific work? What is the stuff that you're calling us to? God, I don't have answers. I don't, I don't know the way forward. I don't know the direction we should go, but I know who you are. And I know if you put something in front of me and I'm gonna go after it, that's the way I should go. So God, what is in front of our house? What tools are you gonna give us? Protect us along the way and let us celebrate the work that's being done around us. We thank you for the work that's already going. We thank you for those who are leading your people well, who are spending time with people inside and outside of the church, who are going after building relationships with people around them at work and at school and in their neighborhoods so that your name might be known a little bit more than it's ever been known before. Stir inside of us a desire to see your name lifted higher. Stir inside of us that work. Move in us in a real way. And all God's people said, amen. We're gonna be done early. We're gonna be done quick today. Just look at your bulletins, know what's going on around the church, but know this. Trust that God's provided you with everything that you need to do what he's called you to. He's provided you with that. Be ready to defend yourself and celebrate what God's got going on around you. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for coming. Have a wonderful week. Know Christ, make him known, enjoy the journey. Thank you guys.